Tucker Carlson announces his comeback with a show on Twitter. A New York jury finds Donald Trump liable for sexual assault and defamation to the tune of $5 million. And the DOJ comes after George Santos. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Today's show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Thousands of my listeners have already secured their network data. Join them at expressvpn.com slash Ben. Well, Tucker Carlson has now broken his silence. Last week, he put out a video saying that he would be back sometime in the near future. And yesterday, he put out about a two-minute video in which he explained that he was, in fact, back. He will be launching a version of his show, he says, on Twitter. Here was Tucker's announcement yesterday. The best you can hope for in the news business at this point is the freedom to tell the fullest truth that you can. But there are always limits. And you know that if you bump up against those limits often enough, you will be fired for it. That's not a guess. It's guaranteed. Twitter has long served as the place where our national conversation incubates and develops. Twitter is not a partisan site. Everybody's allowed here. And we think that's a good thing. And yet, for the most part, the news that you see analyzed on Twitter comes from media organizations that are themselves thinly disguised propaganda outlets. You see it on cable news. You talk about it on Twitter. The result may feel like a debate, but actually the gatekeepers are still in charge. We think that's a bad system. We know exactly how it works, and we're sick of it. Starting soon, we'll be bringing a new version of the show we've been doing for the last six and a half years to Twitter. We bring some other things, too, which we'll tell you about. But for now, we're just grateful to be here. Free speech is the main right that you have. Without it, you have no others. See you soon. And so it is not perfectly clear at this point exactly what Tucker's show on Twitter will look like. What is clear is that there's been no financial arrangement between Tucker and Elon Musk. That was the early speculation as soon as this video came out. There have been rumors in the air that Tucker was working some sort of deal with Elon in order to take his show to Twitter and that Twitter was going to be launching essentially its own sort of show network, video podcast network and all of the rest. It was unclear exactly how that would monetize. Would you pay a subscription fee in order to be able to see a show like Tucker's? Would Tucker be directly getting advertising dollars or whatever the deal is? None of that has been cleared up, especially because Musk actually put out a statement in which he pretty much openly dissociated from the show that Tucker is doing. At least he didn't say it's bad that he's putting it up or anything, but he did say, I'm not putting money behind it. He, he suggested, he, he put out a tweet saying that there, there is no actual deal between him and Tucker, he said, on this platform, unlike the one-way street of broadcast, people are able to interact, critique, and refute whatever he or anyone else may say. He said, I want to be clear. We have not signed a deal of any kind whatsoever. Tucker is subject to the same rules and rewards as all content creators. And then he added those rewards would be subscriptions and advertising revenue shares. So apparently there'll be some sort of sub-stack model, I guess, via Twitter, in which you'll be able to directly contribute to people like Tucker if you enjoy their show via Twitter. He said, I hope that many others, particularly from the left, also choose to be content creators on this platform. So the early speculation, which is that Musk would have been paying some sort of cash bounty, some sort of salary to Tucker, appears not to be the case at this point. What is clear is that Tucker is going to be bringing some version of his show back to Twitter. So he's not going to be absent from the public debate for 12 or 18 months, as the length of his contract at Fox News would suggest. Now, remember, the early news when Fox News parted with Tucker is that this would have made Tucker free as a bird. But that's not how these contracts work. Tucker presumably is still bound by contract. They can continue to pay him and just take him off the air. This is very common in the media industry, is that you are able to to pay somebody and then basically pay them to stay home. Fox has an interest, presumably, in doing that because they don't want Tucker going somewhere else and bad-mouthing them. So how exactly is he able to go on Twitter and do that? Because pretty much by implicit association, that's what he's doing there. When he says there are a lot of media outlets that'll just fire you for saying the truth, 
you have to assume he means the people who just fired him for, in his mind, telling the truth. So what exactly is he doing? So here is my suspicion. My suspicion is that Tucker's contract is very onerous with regard to the other cable networks that he could go to, the other kinds of shows that he could start, any sort of competitive service with, say, Fox Nation. Because, again, this is how lawyers draw contracts. If you have a big personality like Tucker, and if you let Tucker go, either because you want to or because you have to, what you don't want is Tucker going into direct competition with you until you pay him to stay home. However, I'm assuming that there is one area of Tucker's sort of public life that is unbound, and that presumably would be Twitter. And that's, again, very, very common because most personalities wish to keep their Twitter personas separate from their business relationships. This is very common. Here at Daily Wire, for example, we don't control Matt Walsh's Twitter feed. We don't control Candace Owens' Twitter feed. Daily Wire does not control my Twitter feed, right? These are all things where we are saying exactly what we think and what we want. I assume that Tucker's personal Twitter feed is the same sort of thing that he retains rights to his personal Twitter feed. And so he felt comfortable putting this out on his personal Twitter feed. Now, theoretically, it could violate his contract if the contract extends to virtually all video content. But clearly, it doesn't extend to all video content. It might be only extending to video content on channels to which Fox News has rights or it's direct competitors. And so if Tucker is not considered a direct competitor, then theoretically, this could free him from his contract. And this is this would be why he's launching a show on Twitter. Now, I would assume this is the first step in Tucker's comeback. I really doubt that this is the last step. He's going to be battling out in the courts with Fox to free himself, I would assume, from the other provisions of his contract, which is why he has now issued a letter, according to Axios, an aggressive letter from his lawyer to Fox, that that letter essentially argues that Carlson can now breach his contract because he's accusing Fox of having breached its contract. Carlson's contract, according to Axios, currently runs until January of 2025. Fox wants to keep paying him, which would prevent him from starting a competing show. And of course, there are many outlets that have reached out to Tucker. No comment, folks. And the fact is that Tucker is, you know, presumably until that legal situation clears up, bound by contract. So his lawyer, Brian Friedman, who's a very competent lawyer, is a lawyer for a lot of big name personalities, ranging from like Megyn Kelly to Yashara Lee. Brian Friedman has sent a letter to Fox officials like Via Din and Arena Briganti saying that Fox employees broke promises to Carlson intentionally and with reckless disregard for the truth. They're going to claim that essentially Fox broke the contract, not Tucker. And so now Tucker is going to be able to come back and break the contract back. The lawyers are accusing Fox executives, including Din and Murdoch, of making, quote, material representations or promises to Carlson that were intentionally broken, constituting fraud. What exactly would that fraud be? The letter alleges that Fox broke an agreement with Carlson not to leak his private communications to the media and not to use Carlson's private messages to take any adverse employment action against him. Now, it is certainly po possible that Fox executives were leaked. This was the original assumption. And it was an assumption made by Megyn Kelly, who used to work at Fox News. Right? She actually mentioned Irina Briganti, who is sort of the head of comms over at Fox. She mentioned her saying that when she left for NBC daytime, when she did that, she believed that Irene Briganti was the one who was releasing information on her. So she was assuming that that was the same thing that was happening here, that a lot of these leaks about Tucker, you know, the, the white supremacy leak or the, the leak in which she suggested that white people don't fight this way, that that was actually coming from Fox in order to smear Tucker while he was still under contract. And now Tucker is claiming that's exactly what happened. This, I assume, is also why Fox sent a letter to Media Matters, which has been the source of many of these leaks in terms of distributing them. Fox sent a letter to Media Matters telling them to stop doing that. I assume that was a piece of legalese intended to say it's not us. We're not the ones who are doing the leaking. So it doesn't look as though they are violating their contract with Tucker. Also, the letter alleges that Fox broke promises not to settle with Dominion voting systems in a way that would indicate wrongdoing on Tucker's part. And now they're claiming 
that a a member of the board said that Tucker had been file, fired because of the because of the Dominion Voting Systems settlement. Now that may very well be true. It may very it may very well be true that that as part of the sort of Dominion settlement, not that Dominion wanted Tucker fired. They've actually put out a statement themselves saying we didn't want Tucker fired. We don't care about Tucker. But it's possible that Fox looked at that settlement, an eight hundred million dollar settlement, and they said. We don't want anybody who presents legal risk to us. And Tucker is very often walking the line. He's, he's very often on razor's edge. We don't want that legal risk. And so we're getting rid of Tucker. And so theoretically, it could be sort of tangentially related to the Dominion voting systems fallout. They could legally do that, but they can't say it. If they say that we did this as part of the Dominion voting system settlement or as fallout from Dominion voting systems, could that theoretically be read as a, as a breach of a promise that they would not harm Carlson's reputation over the Dominion voting systems claim and settlement? So the letter from Tucker's lawyer says these actions not only breach the covenants of good faith and fair dealing in the agreement, they give rise to claims for breach of contract and intentional and negligent misrepresentation. A Fox News post spokesperson then came out and said it is categorically false that Carlson lost his job as part of the $787.5 million settlement. So we'll get to more on this in just one second. First, you know, all of this stuff is very confusing. It's very miasmatic. And the communications have been garbled. But there is one area where you cannot afford to have your communications card. I'm talking about your cell phone coverage. You need the best cell phone coverage at the lowest possible price. This is why you need Pure Talk. Remember the last time you got a free phone? You started out feeling amazing. And then came the hefty activation fees, four-line requirements, and of course, the binding contract. Pure Talk is giving you a free 5G Samsung Galaxy phone without the feeling you've been duped. When you switch to Pure Talk's unlimited talk and text data plan that comes with the mobile hotspot, you get a 5G Samsung Galaxy for free. That's right, unlimited everything at a fraction of the price of Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile. Here's another thing. You'll be on America's most dependable 5G network. How do I know? Well, I'm a customer. I use Pure Talk. Make the switch to Pure Talk the same way I did. It's the cell phone wireless company I'm proud to stand behind because they actually stand behind us here at Daily Wire. Pure Talk's U.S. customer service team helped me make the switch in as little as 10 minutes. I was even able to keep my phone number. Head on over to puretalk.com slash Shapiro for your free Samsung Galaxy when you sign up for unlimited talk, text, and unlimited data. That is puretalk.com slash Shapiro. Again, Pure Talk, wireless for Americans by Americans. Okay, so back to this conflict between Tucker Carlson and Fox News. And this is going to decide the future of whether Tucker can go to, say, Newsmax or go to, say, Daily Wire or go to any place else and launch a competitive show. Again, Tucker's lawyers are trying to argue that Fox breached its agreement with Tucker, and this now frees Tucker to do whatever he wants. Carlson is claiming that Irene Briganti, Fox's longtime communications and PR chief, attempted to, quote, undermine, embarrass, and interfere with Carlson's future business prospects, which he maintains would constitute another breach of his employment contract. The letter says, make no mistake, we intend to subpoena Ms. Briganti's cell phone records and related documents, which evidence communications with her and all media, including, but not limited to, the New York Times. Now, Again, the, the cell phone records are not really going to demonstrate anything, I would assume. Briganti is the head of communications at Fox News. I assume she speaks to people at the New York Times. The real question is going to be written communications, which, by the way, as a lawyer, I will now be my audience's legal advisor. Guys, don't put stuff in writing. <laughs> this is just like a general rule. Things in writing, bad idea. Text messages, emails, verbal communicate. Here's legal advice from me to you. It's going to save you a bunch of money and a bunch of time in the future. Say things over the phone because things that are said orally are then not permanently memorialized. Okay, but I assume that Irene Briganti knows this. Presumably, if she was leaking this stuff to the New York Times, there probably won't be any record of it. But, you know, they're claiming that she wasn't leaking this stuff to the New York. Again, Megyn Kelly, with whom I'm friends, she says that it's pretty frequent practice for Irene Briganti to do exactly that. I don't know the truth on that, but that is the controversy. 
Carlson's lawyers add that because Carlson is considering litigation against the network to resolve these disputes, Fox News must take all immediate steps to preserve all existing documents and data relevant to Fox's relationship with Carlson, including correspondence between top executives and several media outlets. Now, it is quite possible that all of this is designed by Carlson's lawyers, by Tucker's lawyers, in order to pressure Fox to just release him from the contract. In other words, all this goes away if you guys just release him from the contract and let him fly like a butterfly wherever he wants to go. And Fox, which is a very large company, will have to decide do they wish to continue to litigate this thing out with Tucker in order to preserve Fox News from competition in which Tucker goes to another network? Just on a business level, you see exactly why Fox News would do this. Tucker had a huge audience. The audience in primetime on Fox has dropped by 50% since Fox left the network, uh, since, since Tucker left the network, because Tucker, again, is very talented at what he does. Now, I assume that Fox's long-term plan is you rebuild the audience. They also had significant audience drop-off, and it took like several years for them to rebuild it, even with Tucker after they got rid of Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly dropped. They lost like half their audience. It took them a couple of years. They rebuilt the audience. And one of the things that Fox is saying is that their ad dollars are now coming back because there are a lot of advertisers who are afraid of Tucker, which again, is part of the problem for a company like Fox News that is a major publicly traded corporation. If you're a publicly traded corporation, one of the things you have to do is maximize shareholder value. If you're Daily Wire and an advertiser decides that they're going to boycott you, they don't like you because of something one of your hosts says, we launched like Jeremy's Chocolates and Jeremy's Razors in order to just fight people. Right? We're perfectly happy to do that. Fox isn't doing any of that sort of stuff. So the fact that advertisers had dropped off Tucker's program and that now some of those advertisers feel safer coming back in, and they're saying we're not actually losing money on this thing. So we're perfectly happy to prevent Tucker from going elsewhere and presumably drawing people away from Fox Nation, shifting their subscriptions over from Fox Nation somewhere else. So the real question for Tucker now is whether what he is doing online just restricted to Twitter makes him as prominent in the culture as it otherwise as it otherwise would. I mean, he was, again, one of the biggest, if not the biggest voice in sort of conservative media because of that 8 p.m. slot on Fox News. Without that 8 p.m. slot on Fox News, does he have the same sort of impact? Now, Tucker, his, his videos on Twitter are getting extraordinary numbers of views. I mean, you're talking about 12, 15, 20, in some cases, 40 million views on the last couple of videos. Is that something that's going to maintain? Is it going to play the same way online that it plays in terrestrial media? I mean, the fact is a lot of the Fox News viewers are not people who are on Twitter. Only 2% of the population of the United States is regularly on Twitter. When it comes to Fox News, there's not a huge crossover between the Fox News audience, which is disproportionately elderly, and the Twitter audience, which is disproportionately younger. This doesn't mean that Tucker is going to have outsized impact. He definitely will, but that impact is going to change over time. That's probably what Fox News is counting on. It's all pretty fascinating, but suffice it to say, Tucker is not going to go completely absent in the debate, and he's not going to allow himself to go completely absent in the debate over the course of the next couple of years, this was just the first shot. So anybody who thinks that this is like the, the end of Tucker's relaunch, that, that is incorrect. It is not the end of Tucker's relaunch, but also this is not a cooperative venture between Tucker and Elon Musk, which means again, that there are gonna be other shoes to drop here. This is not like the final stage of Tucker's redevelopment deal. That's not what this is. Meanwhile, CNN is doing exactly what CNN does. And they say, of course, that Tucker is a right-wing extremist. This is literally how they report now. This is the reporting from CNN. They say right-wing extremist Tucker Carlson announced Tuesday he will relaunch his program on Twitter, which he praised as the only remaining large free speech platform in the world after Fox News fired him late last month. So again, they call him a right-wing extremist because this is what CNN does. This is Oliver Darcy reporting over at CNN. This presumably is one of the reasons why Tucker is so popular is because the media insist on going overboard on literally all the things. Worth noting here that CNN, which supposedly hates the right-wing extremists, and they really, really hate Donald, like really hate Donald Trump, They'll be hosting Donald Trump for a town hall style event tonight. So for all these people, we cannot give a voice to the right wing extremists. 
particularly Trump and the MAGA, ultra MAGA movement. Also tonight on our network for ratings and money, we present Donald Trump in conversation. Yeah, man, your media, corrupt as the day is long. Okay, in just one second, we'll get to President Trump, who's now been hit with a $5 million defamation and assault verdict. We'll get to that momentarily first. If you own a business, past few years have been a very bumpy ride. You could probably use a break. Innovation refunds can help. Innovation refunds knows the value of your time. This is why they made it easy to apply for the Employee Retention Credit, or ERC. Go to GetRefunds.com, get started in less than eight minutes, see if your business qualifies for ERC assistance. Your business could be eligible for a payroll tax rebate of up to 26 grand per employee kept on payroll during COVID-19. Innovation Refunds has already helped clients claim over $3 billion in payroll tax refunds through the ERC. They might be able to help your business as well. There's no upfront charge. They don't get paid until your business gets its refund. Don't miss this opportunity because the payroll tax refund, it's only available for a limited amount of time. Go to GetRefunds.com. Again, that's GetRefunds.com. Go check them out right now. GetRefunds.com. If your business paid too much money into the tax system and you can get some of that money back, why wouldn't you do that? The government is seeking to screw you as often as humanly possible. Why not get some of your money back if you overspent on giving them money during the pandemic? Go to GetRefunds.com. Once again, that is G-E-T-R-E-F-U-N-D-S.com. GetRefunds.com. Go check them out right now. Okay, meanwhile, a jury in New York has now found President Trump in not guilty because it is a civil trial, but they have now found him liable for sexual abuse and defamation in the E. Jean Carroll case. Now, we've not followed this case particularly closely because I'll be frank with you. I don't find E. Jean Carroll to be a credible witness. I, I, I think that she, her testimony, she's a very flighty, strange person. She makes Christine Blasey Ford, the lady who testified against Justice Kavanaugh during his judicial hearings, she makes Christine Blasey Ford look as sober as a judge. She makes her look incredibly credible. E. Jean Carroll made the allegation that sometime, sometime, in 1996, sometime, like in the entire year, Donald Trump took her into a room at Bergdorf, Bergdorf Goodman, a fitting room, and then raped her. Right? This, was, this was her allegation. Now, the jury has not found that Donald Trump was responsible for rape. Instead, they, they found that he was actually responsible for sexually abusing and defaming her. So how exactly do they find that he was guilty of some sort of sexual abuse but not rape? It seems kind of weird, right? It does. It seems kind of weird. And the reason it seems kind of weird is because, again, the thing that she was alleging was rape. I mean, if you go back to her original piece in The Cut, which was at thecut.com, this is back in June of 2019, she describes what happened, she says, with Donald Trump. She says this, before I discuss him, I must mention there are two great handicaps to telling you what happened to me in Bergdorf's. A, the man I will be talking about denies it, as he has denied accusations of sexual misconduct made by at least 15 credible women, and then she lists off a bunch of names. The White House at the time said this is a completely false and unrealistic story surfacing 25 years after allegedly taking place and was created simply to make the president look bad. And B, I run the risk of making him more popular by revealing what he did. His admirers can't get enough of hearing that he's rich enough, lusty enough, and powerful enough to be sued by and to pay off every splashy porn star or Playboy playmate who comes forward. And then she continues along these lines. She says, Back at this time in the 1990s, she was a sex advice columnist. She says, early one evening, as I'm about to go out Bergdorf's revolving door on 58th Street, and one of New York's most famous men comes in the revolving door, or it could have been a regular door at that time, I can't recall. He says, hey, you're that advice lady. And I say to number 20 on the most hideous men of my life list, hey, you're that real estate tycoon. Okay, so first of all, immediate question marks. She can't remember what kind of door is being used. So she, she's already saying that her memory is hazy of this. She says, I'm surprised at how good looking he is. We've met once before, and perhaps it is the dusky light, but he looks prettier than ever. 
This has to be in the fall of 1995 or the spring of 1996 because he's garbed in a faultless top coat and I'm wearing my black wool Donna Karen coat dress and high heels, but not a coat. Okay, so point of doubt number two, she can't even name the year. Okay, so she's starting 1995 or 1996. Now, if you talk to people who have survived rape, the, the kind of general presumption that people block out the memories, that may be true in some cases. In many, many cases, women who have been abused Anybody who's been abused, children who have been abused, they remember like exact details, exact details, because it's so unbelievably traumatic. People who suffer from PTSD typically remember the exact details of the things that happened to them. In this particular case, she she remembers what they were wearing, but she can't remember what kind of door was being used. She can't remember even the year. She can't remember the season, right? The fall of 1995 or the spring of 1996, which again is a, a weird dating because there is a season in between, right? I mean, there's winter also that lies in between those. So you're talking about like, it's either September of 1995 or like April of 1996. So I'll, I'll continue with, with this account in just one second. And this is, again, why I haven't paid a lot of attention to the E. Jean Carroll case, because, again, I do not find her to be a particularly credible witness. We'll get to that momentarily first. As you know, as everyone knows, I am like top-notch dad. I'm like amazing at the dadding. I'm so good at it. And one of the things that I do as a dad, I have these giant pillow fights on my bed with all three of my kids. And... I let them win, but let's be honest about this. I'm, I'm much bigger than they are. And, you know, there, there comes a point where you have to take control. You got to start, you know, hitting kids with the pillow. That's, just, that's the way it works. But my kids are always comfortable falling on the bed. Why? Because we have bowl and branch sheets. As you can imagine, being an incredible dad, it also makes me really tired. I like to sleep on those sheets. Bowl and branch sheets are great. Bowl and branch sheets are made from the finest 100% organic cotton threads on earth. They feel buttery to the touch. They're super breathable. They are perfect for both cooler and warmer months. Their signature hem sheets were made with threads so luxurious, four U.S. presidents have slept in them. Bowling Brand sheets actually soften with every wash cycle. They're made without pesticides, formaldehyde, or other harsh chemicals. Best of all, Bowling Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. You're not going to want to return them. Get a better night's sleep with Bull and Branch right now. Get 15% off your first order when you use promo code Shapiro today at BullandBranch.com. That's Bull and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch.com. Promo code Shapiro. Exclusions apply. See site for details, by the way. I'm just telling you, Bull and Branch also, they make like amazing blankets. Like their blankets, they have an afghan that's so good that literally when I travel, I bring it with me. That's how good it is. Bullandbranch.com. Go check them out right now. Okay, so back to this E. Jean Carroll account. This is the original account that she spilled in 2019. She says this is 1995, 1996. This is 2019. So this is 23 years later, minimum. She says that she met Trump walking into Berg. She was walking out, I guess, of Bergdorf and he was walking in. Come advise me, says the man. I got to buy a present. Oh, I say charmed. For whom? A girl, he says. Don't the assistants of your secretaries buy things like that, I say? Not this one, he says. Or perhaps he says, not this time. I can't recall. It's like the third time in five paragraphs, she says, I can't recall. He's a big talker. From the instant we collide, he yammers about himself like he's Alexander the Great ready to loop Babylon. As we're standing just inside the door, I point to the handbags. How about, no, he says, making the face where he pulls up both lips like he's balancing a spoon under his nose and begins talking about how he once thought about buying Bergdorf's. Or a hat, I say enthusiastically, walking toward the handbags, which at the period I'm telling you about, and Bergdorf's has been redone two or three times since then, are mixed in with and displayed next to the hats. She'll love a hat. You can't go wrong with hat. So why does she keep hedging this way? Presumably because the editors were saying to her, I mean, you have to imagine this is what happened. The editors of her book. They're like, you say that the hats were next to the purses, but I've been to Bergdorf's and the hats aren't next to the purses. So what happened? So adding all of these qualifiers and provisos in the original story, right? Maybe the door has been changed since then. I don't know what season it was. The hats used to be next to the purses, but they're not anymore. And I don't really know. It's gone, it's gone over a couple of makeovers, right? They're, they're getting rid of every detail that would actually lend credibility or, or verifiability. Forget about credibility, verifiability to her story. 
I don't remember what he says, but he comes striding along, greeting a Bergdorf sales attendant like he owns the joint, permitting a shopper to gape and awe at him and goes right for a fur number. Please, I say, no woman would want to, dare, would want to wear a dead animal on her head. What he doesn't, what he replies, I don't recall, but I remember he coddles the fur hat like it's a baby otter. How old is the lady in question, I ask? How old are you, replies the man, fondling the hat and looking at me like Louis Leakey carbon dating a thigh bone he's found in Old of I Gorge. I'm 52, I tell him. You're so old, he says, laughing. He was around 50 himself. And it's at this point, he drops the hat, looks in the direction of the escalator and says, lingerie. Or he may have said underwear. So we stroll to the escalator. I don't remember anybody else greeting him or galloping up to talk to him, which indicates how very few people are in the store at the time. I have no recollection where the lingerie is in that era of Bergdorf's. Again, this is like the fourth time in the same story in which she's saying, I don't know where anything is in the store. Nothing. No verify. Because here's the thing. Under cross-examination, all of that could easily fall apart. If she said, I looked at the hats that were next to the purses and that was five steps away from the lingerie. All it would take is somebody coming up with a schematic of a floor plan from Bergdorf in 1996 to say that's not true. Right, it turns out lingerie is on the other end of the store on a different floor. So she's removing all of the verifiable details so that nobody can doubt the story. It seems to me it is on a floor with the evening gowns and bathing suits. And when the man and I arrive, and my memory is now vivid, now it's vivid, no one is present. There are two or three dainty boxes and a lacy see-through bodysuit of lilac gray on the counter. The man snatches up the bodysuit and says, go try this on. You try it on, I say laughing, it's your color. Try it on, come on, he says, throwing it at me. It goes with your eyes, I say laughing and throwing it back. You're in good shape, he says, holding the filmy thing up against me. I want to see how this looks. But it's your size, I say, laughing and trying to slap him back with one of the boxes on the counter. Come on, he says, take my arm. Let's put this on. This is going to be hilarious, I'm saying to myself. And as I write this, I am staggered by my stupidity. Well, I mean, yes. I mean, yes. I, 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 no one is responsible for their own rape. Also, going with men that you don't know to a lingerie section and trying on lingerie for those men, that's a little flirtatious. And that doesn't mean that he raped that, that that she wasn't raped. Doesn't mean he was justified in raping her. But this is not like smart behavior, you would say. As we head to the dressing rooms, I'm laughing aloud and saying in my mind, I'm gonna make him put this thing on over his pants. There are several facts about what happened next that are so odd I want to clear them up before I go any further. Did I report it to the police? No. Did I tell anyone about it? Yes. I told two close friends. The first, a journalist, magazine writer, correspondent on TV morning shows, author of many books, begged me to go to the police. He raped you, she kept repeating when I called her. He raped you. Go to the police. I'll go with you. We'll go together. So the fact that, so she, first of all, obviously she didn't think of it as rape at the time. She has a friend who keeps saying that he raped her and she didn't go to the cops. My second friend is also a journalist, a New York anchor woman. She grew very quiet when I told her. Then she grasped both my hands in her own and said, tell no one, forget it. He has 200 lawyers. He'll bury you. So I have photos or any visual evidence. Bergdorf's security cameras must have picked up as uh, picked us up at the 58th Street entrance of the store. We also would have been filmed on the ground floor in the bags and hat section. Cameras must have captured us going up the escalator and into the lingerie department. However, even if it had been captured on tape, depending on the position of the camera, it would be difficult to see the man unzipping his pants because he was wearing a top coat. The struggle might simply have read as sexy. The speculation is moot anyway. The department store has confirmed it long, no longer has tapes from that time. So there are no tapes, even though there are cameras present. And even if there were cameras present, it wouldn't have been clear what exactly was going on. According to her. So again, this all goes to verifiability. Why were there no sales attendants in the lingerie department? Bergdorf's perfections are so well-known. It is a store so noble, so clubby, so posh. It is almost easier to accept the fact that I was attacked than the fact that for a very brief moment, there were no sales attendants in the lingerie department. Inconceivable is the word. All I can, she says, sometimes a person won't find a sales attendant in Saks. Sometimes one has to look for a sales associate in Barney's or Bloomingdale's or Tiffany. But 99% of the time, you'll have an attendant in Bergdorf's. All I can say is that I did not see an attendant. And the other odd thing is the dressing room door was open. So, what? Why haven't I come forward before now, receiving death threats, being driven by, from my home, being dismissed, being dragged through the mud, joining the 15 women who have come? So she says she was scared. That's why she didn't come forward. 
Okay, and then she talks about what happened. She suggests that the moment the dressing room door is closed, he lunges at me, pushes me against the wall, hitting my head quite badly, puts his mouth against my lips. I'm so shocked, I shove him back and start laughing again and laughing again. He seizes both my arms and pushes me up against the wall a second time. And as I become aware of how large he is, he holds me against the wall with his shoulder and jams his hand under my coat dress and pulls down my tights. She says, I'm astonished by what I'm about to write. I keep laughing. The next moment, still wearing correct business attire, shirt tie, suit jacket, overcoat, he opens the overcoat, unzips his pants, and forcing his fingers around my private area, thrusts his penis halfway or completely, I'm not certain, inside me. It turns into a colossal struggle. I'm wearing a pair of sturdy black patent leather four-inch Barney's high heels, which puts my height around 6'1". I try to stomp his foot. I try to push him off with my one free hand. For some reason, I keep holding my purse with the other. I finally get a knee up high enough to push him out and off, and I turn, open the door, and run out of the dressing room. The whole episode lasts more, no more than three minutes. Okay, so that, that is the, she says she's never had sex with anyone else again. This is, a lifelong, this is a lifelong trauma. Okay, so the reason I don't find her particularly credible is because there are a bunch of lack of verifiable details in this particular story. It is now 20 some years later. And this is also beyond the statute of limitations for like any sort of real rape trial. I mean, this is well beyond the statute of limitations for rape because the law generally presumes that 25 years on, it's gonna be extraordinarily difficult to actually convict somebody of something like this. And you could easily see a defense like a he said, she said defense, right? She, she was laughing the whole time. You know, we went out, she told me to get off, I got off, right? You could see like that, that would not be un- implausible if you saw this in a criminal case, but it's not a criminal case. It's 23 years later in a civil case. And E. Jean Carroll did not immediately upon writing the story, file a civil suit. It took like several years. It's now 2023, The story came out in 2019. It took her a couple of years to file a civil suit. When it was filed, it was funded by Reed Hoffman, who's a big Democrat donor. So there's some real credibility issues in all of this. And again, the the biggest problem here is that E. Jean Carroll is a strange person. So here is E. Jean Carroll on CNN talking about the supposed rape. You don't feel like a victim. I was not thrown on the ground and ravished, which the word rape carries so many sexual connotations. This was not this was not sexual. It just, it, it hurt. It just, what, it just, you know. But I think most people think of rape as a, I mean, it is a violent assault. It is not. I think most people rape. think of rape as being sexy. Mm. Let's take a short break. Think of the fantasies. Mm. We're just going to take a short I mean, break. What? If you can stick around, we'll talk more on the other side. You're fascinating to talk Most to. people think of rape as being sexy. What in the. Even Anderson Cooper is like, I don't know what is the story with this lady. Like, this is super duper weird. Okay, so she's a bad witness. So how exactly did this case go against Donald? So what the, basically what the jury found is that they don't believe her on the rape, right? They clearly don't believe her on the rape. They believe that he assaulted her. So what? They, that he pushed her up against the wall or he just, now why did they believe that? Why did they believe not the rape? Because she's not a super credible witness, but they believe the assault. And the answer to why they believe the assault is because Basically, this trial was a referendum on Donald Trump's P-word tape, right? On the grab him by the P-word. And that, that is, that's what this trial was. This trial was a referendum on Donald Trump having said to Billy Bush on a hot mic on Access Hollywood years ago that when you are very famous, you get to grab women by the bleep and they're fine with it because when you're famous, they'll let, when you're famous people let you do anything. And then there are a bunch of witnesses, like women who came forward and, that, and said that that's what Donald Trump did, that he assaulted them, that he that he forcibly kissed them or he forcibly grabbed them or he forcibly touched them or whatever. And so even though Eugene Carroll is not a good witness, as evidenced by the fact that even a New York jury would not actually say that Donald Trump raped her, what they're basically saying is we believe Donald Trump. When Donald Trump says that he would grab women this way, 
then we believe that. And we believe that many of the women he was grabbing were not super, ha- uh, were not super happy with it, right? Donald Trump's original quote is that women will let you do that, right? Which obviously implies consent. Right? When people let you do a thing, this implies consent. So from Donald Trump's perspective, yeah, I grab women all the time and they're fine with it because I'm famous and rich. And from the perspective of the jury, Donald Trump grab, grabs women all the time and they're not fine with it. And here's a list of 15 women who are, who are not fine with it. Now, this, again, came back to bite Trump personally because Trump did do a deposition on tape. And so here is Donald Trump on tape talking about the grab him by the bleep comments. In this video, I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the Well, that's what it's. If you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. And you consider yourself uh, to be a star? I think you can say that, yeah. Okay, so again, not amazing testimony. And a lot of lawyers are like, oh, no. Again, this is why being Donald Trump's lawyer is actually one of the hardest jobs in the world. Because the main job of a lawyer is shh to your client. Shh, don't do shh, stop. Donald Trump's like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess you could. You could say that. Now, again, what Donald Trump should have said in that deposition is, when I said that, I mean that people let you do it. I literally said that in the tape, that it's consensual. And so I deny that these women did not consent to what I was doing. And I deny, for, but this is essentially what happened. Because Trump said that, because Trump said in that testimony, in deposition, that you can, if you are famous, grab women by the bleep, then when a woman claims that you grabbed her by the bleep, then the jury's like, okay, well, that, that's credible. It's credible that he grabbed a woman by, by the bleep, right? Which is why even the Fox News legal analysts, they were like, yeah, it turns out that testifying against yourself is, is really not a, a brilliant idea. Here, here are some of the Fox News legal analysts talking about this yesterday. So Andy, what do you think the impact was uh, of these pieces of tape on this process? Yeah, <laughs> Martha, I think with something like that, I mean, I think the impact was devastating because of the way, not only what he said, but the way that they presented it. We've seen the Access Hollywood tape up till this point, mainly in the abstract. I think one of the most effective things that the Carroll lawyers did was to introduce the tape to the jury in the course of the testimony of Natasha Stoinoff, who was one of the a woman who claimed that uh, she had been sexually assaulted by former President Trump. So it was not a situation where it could just be sort of dismissed as locker room banter in the abstract. Right. So basically, this reified Trump's statements before. Now, Trump is mad as hell about this, and he has a right to be. He, he wrote on his social media platform, quote, I have absolutely no idea who this woman is. The verdict is a disgrace, a continuation of the greatest witch hunts of all time. This is why it's not going to harm him electorally. The reason it's not going to harm him electorally is because it does look like this was concocted in a laboratory, this case. It looks as though there was a person who almost read his Access Hollywood comments and then was like, what if I just allege that he did that to me because he's already admitted he does that to women, and then I say it wasn't consensual, and then I sue him, and I go to a New York jury, and then they fine him, like $5 million. And that's kind of what the jury did here, because if the jury actually believed that Donald Trump had raped Eugene Carroll, then presumably they would have found that he raped Eugene Carroll. But they didn't find that. Again, what they are basically saying is we don't believe Eugene Carroll's story. We don't believe like that. We believe everything up to what the penetration. Like what what exactly did they not believe in her story? It sounds like what they're saying is we actually don't believe your whole story. But we believe that all these other women 
had experiences verified by Donald Trump on tape talking about grabbing women, and therefore we're going to find him. And so for everybody else looking at this, they're like, well, I mean, he did say that he did that, and there's nothing new here because there have been allegations that he does this to women a lot, and now they're going to give Eugene Carroll like a bunch of his money from a New York jury, which is just looking for an excuse to punish Donald Trump because they hate Donald Trump. So is this going to affect Donald Trump electorally in any way? I have a hard time believing it's going to affect Donald Trump in, in any way. And again, I think it's even, I think when, when he says this feels like a witch hunt, it kind of does. I mean, it looks as though they are now litigating an, an allegation that Donald Trump made about himself in 2014 or whatever it was with Billy Bush. And they found the world's least credible witness, E. Jean Carroll, to talk about this on tape 23 years later. And then the trial wasn't even about E. Jean Carroll. The trial was really about Donald Trump. So what does it look like? It looks like a trial of Donald Trump about Donald Trump by a New York jury and they wanted to find him. That's what it looks like. And so for his supporters, they're like, okay, come on. I'm not going to vote for him based on a New York jury. He doesn't like him. Really? And based on the fact that he supported his own statements that he said on a hot mic and which he's already said that he, he agrees with. We'll get to more on this in a second. First, let's talk about the fact that when you are figuring out your career, you really have to build a skill set. Then you have to build a resume and then you have to find a good job. And that's kind of hard. And if you're an employer and you're looking for a good employee, hard to find the right employee for that job. Well, we have the greatest job matchmaking site of all time. This, of course, would be ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter helps you find the most qualified people for your roles fast. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. ZipRecruiter's matching technology helps you find the most qualified candidates for a wide range of roles. If you see a candidate you like, you can easily send them a personal invite so they're more likely to apply. Their user-friendly dashboard makes it easy to filter, review, and rate your candidates all from one place. Let ZipRecruiter help you find the best people for all your roles. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within day one. See for yourself. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash DailyWire to try ZipRecruiter for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash DailyWire. ZipRecruiter is indeed the smartest way to hire. We've been using ZipRecruiter here at DailyWire for literally years, and you should do the same. It'll make your employee base better. If you're an employee looking for an employer, go to ZipRecruiter as well. Find your next great job. ZipRecruiter.com slash DailyWire. It is the smartest way to hire. Also, despite the lackluster economy, the DailyWire continues to thrive. We are hiring right now. We're looking for a video editor to join our fast-growing post-production team. This person will get the opportunity to work on a variety of content, including our daily podcast, long-form interviews, YouTube videos, and shows like mine, Debunked, and documentaries from Jordan Peterson and more. Four-plus years of professional video editing experience, familiarity, and working at a very fast-paced environment with low turnaround times is required. Bonus points for experience working on viral YouTube content. This is the perfect role for somebody who can expertly follow standardized video editing formats while also possessing a strong creative skill set. A link to your reel is required for consideration. The position is based in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information and to apply, visit dailywire.com slash careers. That's dailywire.com slash careers today. Okay, meanwhile, so does any of this actually affect Donald Trump? The media are treating the Trump $5 million defamation verdict as though this is some sort of serious obstacle to him running. That's, that's ridiculous. It is absolutely not. It'll be interesting to see how Trump responds to questions about this, I assume, on Wednesday night, because he is supposed to do a town hall forum on CNN with Caitlin Collins. Presumably, she's going to ask him about all this, and he's going to do the exact same thing that he did in his testimony. He's probably going to say, it's true when you're famous that you can do whatever you want, and also Eugene Carroll is a liar. And, and that, that's fine. He can do that. Is that going to have any impact? I, I assume that it will not. The, the only thing that's going to have an impact on Trump legally, it's not going to be this. It's not going to be the Alvin Bragg idiot case with regard to campaign finance violations and Stormy Daniels and all of that. The, the only thing that is going to affect Trump legally speaking are just the drip, drip, drip of indictments. It may come a point at which voters are like, yeah, this guy's under so many legal cases that it's, but it's also true that if it feels like, you know, a, a cartoon where all guns are trained on Bugs Bunny, 
you start to root for Bugs Bunny a little bit, right? That, that's kind of what it's going to feel like. There's an indictment watch in Fulton County from Fannie Willis investigating efforts by Trump in Georgia to affect the 2020 election post-election. You still have an upcoming trial in a New York civil case against the Trump organization. There's still the federal probe from special counsel Jack Smith about Trump trying to subvert the 2020 election. And there's a federal probe on the handling of classified documents. The problem is each one of these cases in isolation looks really weak. And so when you have a bunch of weak cases in isolation, it looks like exactly what Donald Trump wants. This is actually, all of this can be seen as a giant in-kind contribution to Donald Trump's primary campaign. Every time he feels targeted, the Republican base rushes to his defense. So it all helps him in the primaries. Now, does it help him with the general population? I think not. I don't think there's anybody out there who was kind of an independent and like, well, now that he is being targeted by everyone, I like him more. I, I don't think there are tons of people like that. But the idea that it's really going to be like a serious bar to Trump running, I think is, is ridiculous. This is why there's an article in the Washington Post. It's titled right now, Sexual Abuse Verdict Renews Republican Doubts About Trump's Electability. Listen, I think if you had doubts about Trump's electability, and I have doubts about Trump's electability, considering he already lost to Joe Biden, and that he had to pull a rabbit out of a hat to beat Hillary Clinton. Like, again, I have doubts about his electability, but not because of this. Because Trump is Trump and people have their opinions on Trump. Now, the, the notion that this is going to be some sort of kill shot with regard to his campaign is obviously incredibly silly. It just it doesn't make any sense. Meanwhile, George Santos, Republican congressperson from New York, he has now been arrested on 13 charges of wire fraud, money laundering, theft of public funds and making materially false statements. It's always the ones you least suspect, guys. It's, you know, it's, it's like the butler did it. Uh, George Santos, who lied about literally all the things, it turns out that he probably also lied about money and public funds and how he was using the money and all the rest of that sort of stuff. And this provides a sort of conundrum for the Republican Party because, again, their majority in the House is extraordinarily slim at this point. Right now, their majority is like four seats, five seats. Like 222 is their majority. Now they're down to 221, I would presume. And the way that it works is that he would presumably be replaced by the governor of New York. The governor of New York, of course, is Kathy Hochul, who's a Democrat. So that means that the Democrats will appoint someone to fill that seat. That was a swing district that Santos had won. And so the large scale probability here is that the Republican majority will decline by one, which is a problem for McCarthy, because, again, he does have this kind of solid core of people who are gadflies and who vote against everything that he brings up. That would be Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene and the like. It doesn't always include MTG, by the way. MTG very, very often will vote with McCarthy, actually. She's, she seems to be more rational in terms of her legislative priorities than, say, Matt Gaetz. Um, but it does mean that his majority shrinks a little bit, and that's a problem for the Republicans. Meanwhile, and I guess that he's being indicted because he is slightly more of a liar than all the other members of Congress. But, you know, here's the good news. There are plenty of liars left over in Congress. That would include the irrepressibly stupid AOC. So she's also a pathological liar. Yesterday, she uh, pathologically lied about Jordan Neely. Jordan Neely is, of course, the mentally ill and career criminal black man who died on a New York subway after a Marine put him in a submission hold in an attempt to stop him from attacking the other passengers. She tweeted out, a safer city is one with fewer people suffering from homelessness, not because they've been displaced, but because they have been housed. Mm. So the real problem is that New York doesn't provide any of the resources necessary for people like Jordan Neely. There's only one problem. As Thomas Chatterton Williams a writer for The Atlantic, who is not a conservative, pointed out, she, she says Jordan Neely was killed because he couldn't access mental health support. That's a lie. According to the actual New York Times reporting, he was arrested not all that long ago, and he was supposed to go from court to live at a treatment facility in the Bronx and stay clean for 15 months. 13 days later, he abandoned the facility. We talked about this at the time. So this idea that this is about underfunding in New York City, it's not about underfunding. It's about the fact that there are no consequences for simply going out and living on the street and then abandoning your drug rehab facility. But AOC wants you to be able to abandon your drug rehab facilities, an aspect of freedom to live on the streets, according to people 
like AOC. Again, pathological lies exist all over Congress. Only George Santos is really being targeted over his pathological lies. Meanwhile, the immigration crisis on our southern border gets worse and worse and worse. According to the Wall Street Journal, officials in New York and Chicago have now declared states of emergency after Texas Governor Greg Abbott resumed busing migrants to northern sanctuary cities ahead of the expiration later this week of Title 42. Busloads of migrants, mostly from Texas, began arriving in cities hundreds of miles from the border last year. Officials have been trying to provide housing and services for those new arrivals in Chicago, New York, and Washington, D.C. Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, she says we have hit the breaking point. She is still the outgoing mayor of Chicago. They've taken in like 8,500, 9,000 illegal immigrants over the course of the last year. Meanwhile, you have 10,000 illegal immigrants arriving on the border like every single day. And all those people are just being schlepped to the streets of El Paso and left there. But Lori Lightfoot is in a state of panic because some busloads of people are entering a city of millions. Here's Lori Lightfoot talking about it. Last week, I sent a letter to Governor Abbott when we learned that he may be sending more migrants to our city via bus. Uh, to try to reason and explain to him that, yes, of course, we are a welcoming city, and we will always do what is right by our immigrant and refugee communities. But we've reached a breaking point in our response to this humanitarian crisis, primarily manufactured by him for cynical political purposes. Oh, it's super cynical for Abbott to send people to cities where they want to go. You know, it's not cynical, though, apparently, what Eric Adams is doing. So Eric Adams is the mayor of New York. He's also claiming that it's very cynical to send people to New York City as a destination. So what is he doing? It's hilarious how undercovered this is. What exactly is Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, doing with all these illegal immigrants? Quote, officials representing some New York suburbs have rebuked New York City Mayor Eric Adams' plan to send migrants to their towns for shelter. This is ABC News reporting. So Eric Adams' plan is, I'm going to whine about people being sent to New York City, one of the biggest cities on the planet. And I'm going to take those people and I'm going to send them to Rockland County. I'm going to just schlep them to the suburbs and leave them off next to the school. That's my plan. So bad when Greg Abbott sends busloads of illegal immigrants to New York City. Good when Eric Adams takes those busloads of immigrants and unloads them in Rockland County. Rockland County's top official declared a state of emergency on Saturday in response to Adams' plan to send 340 adult male migrants to live at an Armani Inn and Suites in Orangeburg, New York for four months. Now, I mean, honestly, uh, oh, uh, Oh, darn, it's the consequences of my own actions. Oh, no, here they come. Um, Rockland County had declared itself a, a sanctuary city in December of 2016. Um, or, or apparently Rockland County did not. So New York City declared itself a sanctuary city, mainly to virtue signal to their left. And Rockland County's like, uh, guys, we didn't do that. Why are you schlepping them here? The county executive, Edwin Day, said the city declared itself a sanctuary city in December 2016, committing itself to supporting undocumented individuals. This county has not. We're one-tenth the population of New York City. We're not capable of receiving and sustaining the volume of undocumented migrants Eric Adams intends to send over. Rockland County is 40 miles northwest of New York City. It is close to the Hudson River. So on Friday, Adams announced he was sending migrants to neighboring New York counties in response to the rising numbers of asylum seekers in the city. So now it's, this is good. DeSantis sends people to Martha's Vineyard very bad. Eric Adams says he's going, we'll take you in. We love you guys. Come on in. Illegal immigrants, this is a sanctuary city. We're not even going to help the federal officials effectuate immigration policy. We're not going to deport any of you. You get to stay here. Also, you're not staying here. You're staying actually in Rockland County. Adams said at a press conference, despite calling on the federal government for a national, national decompression strategy since last year and for a decompression strategy across the state, New York City has been left without the necessary support to manage the crisis. With a vacuum of leadership, we're now forced to undertake our own decompression strategy. Man, I, I love this. I love that Eric Adams is going to escape scrutiny for now schlepping people to the middle of nowhere 
after declaring that he was going to help everybody. Meanwhile, immigrants continue to pour over the borders. This, this video from Matamoros, Mexico is absolutely shocking. This is just people who are pouring over the border here. Look at this. It's unbelievable. That, of course, is uh, people pouring across the Rio Grande. Men and women and children by the hundreds climbing up the banks of this river. Things are going great, guys. And the good news is Joe Biden has all of it under control. In fact, Joe Biden didn't even have to answer any questions. Yesterday, he did a presser. And by a presser, I mean he answered no questions and then smirked as reporters were were let out of the room. We're going to solve all the world's problems. There he is, he's smiling. Oh, this is fun, guys. I'll see you, I'll see you later. Yeah, that's right. I'm a giant jackass. Right, bye, guys. I don't answer questions. I'm just the president. Bye. I say that that of course was during a um, a session, including Hakeem Jeffries, Kevin McCarthy, and Chuck Schumer to talk about the um, the budget crisis. But there will be no questions to Joe Biden. Joe Biden did have a comment, by the way. He just keeps smiling like a weirdo. He's such a weird old Cesar Romero joker type. So weird. Anyway, here was Joe Biden yesterday on the border. His comments uh, were less than edifying. I spent uh, close to an hour with with the Mexican president today. Uh, We're doing all we can. Uh, The answer is uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, We've gotten overwhelming cooperation from Mexico. Uh, We also are in the process of setting up uh, offices in Colombia and other places where you can, where someone seeking asylum can go first. So, but it remains to be seen. It's going to be chaotic for a while. Oh, it'll be chaotic for a while. Guys, don't worry about it. It'll be chaotic. By, by a while, I mean for the rest of your life. That, that's by a while. And by chaotic, I mean like millions of illegal immigrants crossing the border being caught and, and then released. Corinne Jean-Pierre was asked whether Joe Biden has any plans to address Americans on the border crisis. She's like, are you kidding? We can't even get this guy to string two sentences together. No way about uh, Title 42 share message that Mayorkas has given or, you know, you know, something to that effect. Will we hear from the president on Title 42? Well, I would say you heard from the president just this past Friday. He did a he did a interview, a sit down interview uh, with one of the networks and talked about Title 42, talked about immigration. So the American people did hear directly from the president on this issue. Uh, I don't have anything else to share in the next couple of days about uh, the president's schedule. Uh, So I'll just leave it there. Just um, that he did talk to MSNBC, guys. I mean, you should be. But there is good news. Corinne Jean-Pierre says we have top men on this, just like the Ark of the Covenant. Top men. And by top men, she means Kamala Harris. I don't know how anybody finds this edifying. She says, yeah, we got a border crisis. But, you know, Joe Biden is talking to Kamala Harris, who will presumably be supplying electric school buses and Venn diagrams to all of the illegal immigrants. Vice President be involved in today's meeting since she'll be here in the country while the president is away? So the president is is uh, closely, has been closely consulting with the vice president on this. Uh, they have, mm. have had several conversations on this issue. Uh, and so again, when it comes to uh, issues mm. that matter to the American people, they're very much partners. Yeah. Mm. And probably Kamala Harris like, mm, yeah. I mean, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good, good stuff from from. I'm sure she's fixing all the problems. She's done an amazing job on the border so far. Remember, he deployed her to solve the border crisis two years ago, and it's been going swimmingly. 
And by swimmingly, I mean literally thousands of people swimming across the Rio Grande to enter the United States. That, that's exciting stuff. Meanwhile, the Biden administration doing yeoman's work on blowing up the budget as well. So there's been no breakthrough on the debt ceiling. There was a all for show meeting yesterday between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But according to the Wall Street Journal, they remain at loggerheads after a meeting at the White House on Tuesday. They have made little progress in averting the first ever default by the federal government. Again, you know, I am not one for conspiratorial thinking. However, it occurs to me that Joe Biden, knowing that the economy is not in amazing shape right now and that there will probably be a recession, him finding an excuse to blame Republicans who are not really in charge of the government might actually be in his wheelhouse. He might be looking for a way to blame Republicans for an economic downturn. And maybe that's why he's not negotiating, because there's no other reason not to negotiate at this point, considering avoiding the debt ceiling is not all that tough. Kevin McCarthy's proposal, which is to, again, not lower spending, but to stop the trajectory of spending from rising in the same way, has been outright rejected by the White House. He just wants to go back to 2022 levels of spending, and yet there is no movement. None whatsoever. Here's Kevin McCarthy yesterday announcing, yeah, we, we sat in a room and Joe Biden stared at the walls and ate oatmeal and it was real weird. We can lift the debt ceiling and find a way that we can curve this increasing debt that is affecting every American family with inflation. And now three banks of our four largest banks have closed are in the debt problem. Nothing has changed since then. The only thing that has changed is the House has raised the debt ceiling and passed the bill. That's why we had a meeting today. Everybody in this meeting reiterated the positions they were at. I didn't see any new movement. The president said the staff should get back together. But I was very clear with the president. We have now just two weeks to go. Okay, meanwhile, the Democratic playbook here is we just can't default. Under no circumstances can we default. We're not cutting anything, but we, we definitely, it's so important. We cannot default. We must pay our, we must pay our debts. Also, we're not negotiating. Under any circumstances, here's Hakeem Jeffries doing that dance. Under no circumstances should the United States default on our debt. America must always pay our bills. A default would be catastrophic for everyday Americans, for small businesses, for people all across the land. Mm. Well, yes, obviously you guys care about the small businesses all across the land that you shut down for two years. And well, well done on that. You know, Chuck Schumer, he, he's doing the same routine. Look at these terrible Republicans, Chuck Schumer. Oh, oh, these terrible, it's just amazing. They won't, they won't do what we want them to do. And it's just awful, it's awful. He refused. President Biden said he would. Leader Jeffrey said he would. Of course, I said I would. But he wouldn't take it off the table. And instead of him giving us a plan to remove default, he gave us a plan to take default hostage. Take default hostage. He passed a bill that raises the debt ceiling. It's you guys who refuse to even negotiate so much so that Joe Biden now says he's thinking of just violating the Constitution and he's going to you know, consider the 14th Amendment a basically blank slate to spend whatever he wants to spend. You said you're certain you're not going to not going to won't be default. Um, are you willing to take unilateral action like a book in the 14th Amendment to make sure that doesn't happen? Well, uh, the question, I have been considering the 14th Amendment, and a man I have enormous respect for, Larry Tribe, who advised me for a long time, thinks that it would be legitimate. But Larry the problem Tribe. is it would have to be litigated. And in the meantime, without an extension, it would still end up in the same place. Yeah, you see how much fun that is? It's really fun that Larry Tribe can plant an op-ed in the New York Times talking about how he's now in favor of reinterpreting the 14th Amendment. And then Joe Biden can go out and cite that and pretend that he has legal precedent for this, which he doesn't. 
Joe Biden was asked about the fact that he's not negotiating. And uh, and then Biden got real chippy with it with the reporters. He, he started getting real mad at the reporters. Why are you even asking me this stuff, man? Why are you, don't you know that I don't get Zamachan and the gambit is in the goop shab? Speaker McCarthy said that he asked you numerous times if there was anywhere in the federal budget for cuts, but he did not get an answer. So is there I got any a specific answer? answer. I got a specific answer again today. Which is what? You didn't listen either, so why should I even answer the question? I, we cut the deficit by $160 billion. Billion, B-I-L-L-I-O-N, dollars on the Medicare No, you deal. didn't. What he is proposing, is there any room no, you for didn't. negotiation? What's he proposing? Did he tell you? Did he, you he talked about... No, 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 I'm not being facetious. Did he tell you what he's proposing? He, he was talking about the bill. Yeah, but what does what it propose? Do you know? I'm not being a wise guy. You are, though. It's in English on the web. You can read the bill. It talks precisely about the cuts that he wishes to implement. What are you talking about? What in the world are you talking... It doesn't matter. This is why, again, I think the Democrats... Joe Biden and company, they may want to run the economy directly into the ground. And, and they may want to do so just so they can blame Republicans. I mean, it, it really is an incredible thing. I mean, that's what Karine Jean-Pierre tried yesterday. She was like, Republicans are threatening recession and 8 million jobs. Are they or are you? You won't even, nego- like, if you guys would negotiate and you'd say, here's our position. And then the Republicans are like, here's our position. Then maybe you could find a middle position. But when your position is, we will not negotiate ever at all. Who, who looks more unwilling to raise the debt ceiling? Kevin McCarthy, who passed a bill to raise the debt ceiling, or you, who are doing nothing. It's not about the president. It's about the American economy. It's about the American people. That's what the president views as success. That's the way that it should be done. Regular order. This is regular order. What House Republicans are saying is that they they want to potentially, if they get their way, threaten the, the country's first default, something that has never happened before. That's what they're threatening again, could lead to trigger a recession. Eight million jobs potentially lost. That is what they are threatening. That's what they're threatening? That's what you're threatening. Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia, he's like, you know it's unreasonable that Biden isn't even negotiating? Yeah, Joe, that's correct. Senator Joe Manchin, who has been calling on the White House to sit down and have these discussions with Republicans, indicating that they need to agree to some spending cuts, otherwise, the consequences he warned could be drastic. It's just, it's not rational, it's not reasonable, and it's not practical. And it's something that it's, it's hypocritical to say that we're not going to do it now when we've done it every time that there has been a split in the party. The only time that I know there hasn't been big discussion is when one party, whether it be Republicans, have the president, the House, and the Senate. Or the Democrats have all three. Plain. Well, they're saying no, no cuts, nothing tied to it. That's not, that's not, I think that's not reasonable. Yes, it is not reasonable. By the way, that's a member of Joe Biden's own party. And with Dianne Feinstein absent, it means they don't actually have a majority in support of Joe Biden, even in the Democrats Senate. That's what that means. But Joe Biden doesn't care because that's the way this works. He's hoping the media will cover for all of his foibles and he's probably not wrong. And meanwhile, on the international front, There are a couple of major stories brewing. One, of course, is actually in Pakistan, which we don't pay attention to a lot. We really should. It's a country of 230 million people with nuclear weapons. And nobody ever pays any attention to Pakistan, despite the fact that Pakistan is generally in a widespread, decades-long battle between radical Islamists and people who are slightly more moderate, between military dictatorship and a democracy that may go radical. So Imran Khan, 
who is currently the most popular leader in Pakistan and tends to be on the more extreme ang- sort of more extreme side of Pakistani politics, has now been arrested, which could lead to mass unrest by his supporters, according to The New York Times. Imran Khan, who's Pakistan's ousted prime minister, was arrested on corruption charges on Tuesday in a major escalation of a political crisis that has engulfed the country over the past year and that raises the prospect of mass unrest by his supporters. The arrest intensified a showdown between the powerful Pakistani military and Khan and brought the, le- the country into uncharted political territory. Pakistani leaders have faced arrest before, but never has anyone like Khan so directly and with mass popular support challenged the military, which for decades has been the invisible hand wielding power behind the government. And this is what should scare people. And again, it it demonstrates pretty full scale that sometimes there's a conflict between democracy and, you know, the interests of the West. One of the great lies about American foreign policy is that American foreign policy in all circumstances must cut in favor of sort of formalistic democratic arrangements as opposed to American interests. And it's a fool. It's a fool's game because the reality is that if the military in Pakistan were no longer in charge of the nukes, but Imran Khan were, this would be a significantly less stable region. It's already an unstable region. Political tensions have been building for months as Khan, a former popular, former cricket star who is extremely populist, has accused the military and the current government of conspiring against him. Both the military and government officials deny those claims. His supporters are ransacking the official residences of army commanders. Hundreds of protesters have gathered outside army headquarters just outside Islamabad. In the port city of Karachi, the police are firing tear gas to disperse crowds. Again, it's the fact that Pakistan has nuclear weapons is one of the least covered, most dangerous parts of world politics. You know, Pakistan is in a is in an in unbreachable conflict. I mean, it's in, it's just an intransigent conflict for the last since 1948. Nobody pays any attention to that. I really no one pays any attention to the fact that Pakistan has been in a series of conflicts with with India for seven decades. And that Pakistan is constantly in danger of falling directly under the sway of radical Islamists. Nobody pays any attention to that. Instead, they pay attention to Israel killing terrorists. So this is the other story that's on the table today, is that Israel launched something called Operation Shield and Arrow, killing three high-level Islamic Jihad leaders. Islamic Jihad is a terrorist group by every available metric. It is backed by Iran. Islamic Jihad, just last week, launched 102 rockets, 104 rockets, into Israel. And Israel retaliated by killing three Islamic Jihad leaders. They did so in extremely targeted strikes. And the international community, they always treat a targeted strike as though it's, it's an act of, of egregious war crime violation. It's insane. Israel will literally take out, not apartment buildings, apartments, like single apartments in terror-occupied areas with the intent of killing as few human beings as possible. You can see the pictures of it. They'll take out like a room in an apartment. And it'll turn out that the terrorists have been trotting their kids around with them, specifically in order to deter Israel from killing them. And Israel will call off strikes. I mean, I've seen footage of them doing this. They literally call off strikes if there are too many civilians in the area. But they have to make a call sometimes. Do I kill the Islamic Jihad leader, even though he's hiding behind his kids? And it's on him. Because you know what people of any level of decency don't do? Hide behind their children. I have three children of my own. You think I would trail them around with me to deter someone from killing me? That's insane. That's insane. So Israel kills these three Islamic Jihad leaders, and this has led to mass rocket attacks that uh, across Israel, including in Tel Aviv. The videos are, are very easy to find. You can see people being evacuated on the roads. They're literally driving to Tel Aviv on a main highway, and the sirens will go off, and suddenly Israelis have to run off out of their cars onto the side of the road where there's no bomb shelter whatsoever. And then you will see rockets being shot down by the Iron Dome. An Iron Dome, which, by the way, is is opposed by people like Rashida Tlaib, who's a terror supporter. The... the it, it, it's, it's total madness. 
I mean, there were pictures that were emerging of LL flights, like these are civilian airliners, flying into Ben Gurion Airport and rockets being shot down, not all that far from the jets. No country worth its salt can tolerate this. If this were America, let's say that Mexican drug cartels started using Matamoros, Mexico as a launching point, a staging point for hundreds of rocket attacks into Brownsville, Texas. Let's say that started happening. American Marines would be sitting in Mexico City tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning. Entire areas of the Mexican border would be free of humans. Because you know what the American military does not do? Play around. And you know what else they don't do? They don't worry so much about what the UN Security Council is going to do. The fact that Israel is criticized when it has to kill terrorists and those terrorists hide behind their families. But that terrorists can shoot hundreds of rockets into a sovereign state and Israel is expected to absorb it is totally insane. The Israeli government should do whatever it has to do to stop the terrorism. Yes, up to and including taking controversial military actions to kill as many terrorists as possible and stop these sorts of attacks. You can't have a country that's living half underground. Total madness. Absolute madness. Okay, let's get to some things I like and then some things that I hate. So, things that I like today. So, Mr. Beast has put out a new video. He's the most popular YouTuber. He's put out a new video. In this video... He helps 1,000 deaf people hear again. He pays for the hearing. He, he pays for cochlear implants and stuff, helping deaf people to actually hear again or hear for the first time. That's pretty awesome, right? I mean, here's some of the video. This is the first out of 1,000 deaf people that we're going to help hear again. And she hasn't heard her mother's voice in four years. Can you hear? I love you. Next, we help Kaylee, Sudi, and even entire families hear their loved ones again. But they are only a few of the 1,000 people that we are going to help hear again today. We got our hands on over $3 million of cutting-edge hearing technology that, unlike old hearing aids, analyzes people's specific hearing needs and allowing them to hear again without causing any damage. Can you hear me talking now? Yes. Oh, my God. Wait, can you hear me? I'm going to cry. Okay, like, that's great, right? Nothing bad about that. Oh, don't worry. In the world of the internet, everything is bad. Everything is terrible. So a bunch of people have now come out ripping on Mr. Beast. Okay, so the Redditors, they, uh, they, have, they have decided there are many reasons why they are very, very upset at Mr. and Mr. Beast. So some people will say, well, you know, when, when he gives charity, when he gives charity, he's just covering for the failures of the systems. This is sort of the Bernie Sanders attitude toward charity which is that if you help your neighbor, this is bad because really the government should be helping your neighbor and you should pay taxes to the government, you jerk. Stop helping people, it's bad. You know, they're, they're, the problems caused by capitalism are the... Okay, so let's be real about this. Those hearing implements do not exist without capitalism. End of story. So one of the people on Reddit was like, this came to a head with the recent stunt of paying for a thousand blind people's medical treatments to help them gain sight. Looking at that, it's a very nice thing for somebody to do, but at the same time, it highlights there are many people going without things like available medical treatment only because they lack the resources to pay themselves. And there is no broader societal mechanism to help them. Wait, so me doing a nice thing for my neighbor is bad because there's no broader societal mechanism for those people to be helped by the government. So unless you're a full-scale socialist, you shouldn't give charity. And also, even when you're a full-scale socialist, you shouldn't give charity because your money should go to the government. These people are morons. Also, Apparently, they say he's a for-profit charity because he presents himself as a philanthropist when in reality, he's a CEO whose business model is turning people in bad situations into a profit. So first of all, let's say that that were true. Let's say that he put ads on this. So? So? So you mean advertisers want to be associated with a good thing and then they want to pay him and then he's going to use some of that money to do more good things? Oh, no. He's going to use his money to do nice things for people? Whoa, that's terrible. 
I, on a personal level, thank God, have very good cash flow. And I spend a lot of my money on charity. But according to these morons, if I make a lot of money and give a lot of my money to charity, that's bad because I shouldn't be making a lot of money. And Mr. Beast, if he's making money off of people getting the warms and fuzzies from this sort of stuff, that means he's a bad person. That means you're a bad person if you object to this. <laughs> God, be honest with you. Also, he's specifically said that on these videos, he does not monetize them. That he, he does not try to make money off of these videos. Now, listen, I would have no problem if he did try to make money off of these videos because some of that money is going to go to more videos like this where he's helping a thousand people here. But apparently... He, he doesn't want that sort of controversy, so he's not even monetizing these videos. So then they go to the indirect route. Oh, well, you know, this is making him more famous. And when you click on his videos, it makes him more money. And then he's using that money to help people, and that's making him richer. Okay, let me ask you a question. If you, here are the alternatives. The alternatives is, the alternative is a rich person helps people, or you make him poorer and he doesn't help people. Those are the choices. There's no choice where you randomly make him poorer, and then he spends all that money helping people. Because that's not how the world works. That's ridiculous. And then finally, the, the last criticism is, are selfless acts truly altruistic if you film it and want people to know that you perform the selfless act? And this would be sort of the Kantian argument. Is, oh my God, what's his intent? What's his, the intent is really the thing. Did he intend to be charitable? So first of all, you can intend to be charitable and do it publicly. It's actually kind of an important thing. So Maimonides has a hierarchy of the best types of charity to do. Number one type of charity you can do is give somebody a job. If you give somebody a job, according to my money, this is the best type of charity. Number two is giving anonymously. And the reason that giving anonymously is the second best type of charity is because then you know you're not doing it for the credit. And then you get into like giving charity, but having your name attached to it. But there is a proviso. Okay, if you putting your name on a charitable endeavor causes others to give more charity, that's a good thing. So when we give charity, my wife and I, we like to give anonymous charity. Because, frankly, we don't care if our name is associated with it. We're not doing it for the, for the claps and the giggles. We're doing it specifically because we want to give the money and we feel duty-bound to do so. Okay, but there have been situations where we specifically will give public charity because it encourages other people to give the charity. If you've ever been to a charity fundraiser, this sort of stuff happens all the time. I've emceed many charity fundraisers. When you emcee a charity fundraiser, very often what you do is you'll do a fundraise at the end. You'll get up and you'll say, listen, it's time to give to X organization. It's a, for school scholarships. It's going to be a great organization. And I, as a famous person, I pledge that I'm giving $10,000 to this organization. How much is Bob giving? And then it turns out the people in the room are like, oh, man. Well, I mean, if he's giving 10, then maybe I'll give 10. If he's giving 10, maybe I should give 15. So if Mr. Beast goes out there and does a charitable thing, maybe it will cause other rich people to do charitable things. <gasps> can't do that. Now, the, real, the, the reality is the reason so many people are hating on Mr. Beast on this particular score is because when people are very rich and very successful, there are a lot of people who hate them. That's number one. But number two, there is now ingrained in a lot of young people this weird idea that helping your neighbor on a personal level is a betrayal of the need for systemic change. The reason they think this is because so much of our philosophy now is driven by the idea if you say that people can individually change their situation or change the issues of others, then this means that you will be redirecting energy from the system itself. This is the Bernie Sanders take. You give charity, well, you should be spending all the, all the time and money that you're giving to the charity. You should be spending that on political activism to change the entire system. Blah, blah, blah. Well, maybe I don't think that the system is bad, number one. And maybe number two, even if I were an activist, I could do both. But I've noticed that there's a weird sort of reversal, which is that Bernie Sanders gives virtually no charity. The Democrats overall give very, very little charity. By every possible study in the United States, red state pe people who vote red give way more charity as a percentage of their income than people who vote blue. Why? Because people who vote blue are like, well, I gave it the office. And people who vote red are like, well, no, actually, my money doesn't even belong to me. It belongs to God. And that means a certain percentage of my money needs to go to people who can't take care of themselves. 
So which are the better people? The people who are like, I gave it the office because I made Bob give the money. And that was really the big thing. So I forced Bob to give the money. Or the guy who's like, you know what? I'm giving of my own accord, much of that. You want to get to the Kantian, you know, the, the sort of Kantian intent of it? Who is the better person by Kant's standards? The person who says, I'm giving money of my own accord because I think it is good to give money or the person who forces the other guy to give money or says, I'm giving money because I'm forced to by the federal government and this makes me superior. Again, this is all insane. I, I, I fail to understand anything remotely like why Mr. B should be criticized over this sort of stuff. He tweeted out, Twitter, rich people should help others with their money. Me, okay, I'll use my money to help people. I promise to give away all my money before I die, every single penny. Twitter, Mr. Beast bad. So first of all, I, I don't pledge to give away all my money before I die because I want my kids to have my money. I'm not pledge. I pledge to give away a large chunk of my money before I die, which I will because I give away a significant chunk of my money every year. I give away a lot of my money. Not all of it, not 50%. I, I give a lot of money. And you know what? Good. Doesn't make me a saint. Makes me like a normal charitable person. And that's a good thing. If Mr. Beast wants to give away more than that, good for him. But the fact that this is even controversial, we, what, what a gross society looks like is this. I mean, truly, a, a gross society looks like, here's a guy who's curing a thousand people of their deafness. What a jerk. What a jerk. Well done, guys. Okay, time for a quick thing that I hate. So this is actually two separate things that I hate. So first of all, Disney and their deep and abiding desire to apparently trans the kids is very weird. So apparently, Melissa McCarthy, who is the voice of Ursula in the new live action, or she plays Ursula in the new live action Little Mermaid, she showed up and had a heartwarming run-in with iconic drag queen Nina West. Oh, so iconic. Like Einstein iconic. Like Moses iconic. The two met on the red carpet and began bowing to each other and chanting, it's everything I ever wanted. McCarthy grasped West's hands, told her her dress was perfection and invited her to breakfast. Oh, they're doing... Oh, Look at that. Look at the beauty of a woman bowing to a man dressed as a woman at the Disney premiere. It's so nice. I'm so glad that Disney invited this very giant male drag queen to a premiere of a children's movie. It's so nice. According to Yahoo News, the pair seemed to have an instant connection, even broke into song with an impromptu version of Rosemary Clooney's sisters while they wrapped their arms around each other's shoulders. So, so nice. Sisters forever. Here, here's a little bit of the video of Melissa McCarthy talking about her heartwarming moment with a dude dressed as a lady. I had no idea that the original Ursula was based off the late great divine. Yes. No idea. I know that's incredible. And you have your own personal history with drag queens. I, I, have, I have loved drag queens since I was in high school. I think they're, it's one of the most joyful, irreverent, funny, fantastic uh, sources of entertainment. We've been doing it since we've been telling stories. It's since the beginning of time. So, uh, and I have such a love of John Waters films. It's like we just watched them on a loop all through college. And so when Little Mermaid came out, and there was no, there, it was before the internet, guys. I'm that old. But there was no way to kind of, I, I didn't know how to find out, but I was like, I am positive Whoever created her look and created this character was was a fan of Divine. I was like, I know it with my whole heart, and now I know it to be true. And I was like, of course. Of course. So the idea is that the original Ursula in the animated film was based on Divine, who's a drag queen. Okay, that's true. Also, nobody knew that at the time, and no one cared. And the reason no one cared is because Disney wasn't actually attempting to trans the kids back in 1989, when The Little Mermaid came out in 1990, whatever year it was. 
it, it is amazing. So Disney, this is what Disney wishes to trot out. Like, slow clap for these geniuses. So you morons have undercut your own value by pushing all of the social leftism in movies for kids. And the way you're trotting out Little Mermaid, which is going to be one of your big live action remakes of the animated film, is not only by pushing the woke notion of racially neutral casting, except if there's a black character, which never, ever can be cast as white. Not only going to do that, you are also going to now promote and continue to facilitate drag queen story hour amongst the children at, at the Little Mermaid. By the way, got to love the fact that it's Rachel, what's her face? Rachel Lindsay, the bachelorette, everybody is racist lady uh, who, uh, who's interviewing. It just that, that is like a singularity of woke idiocy right, right there. And genius. Stuff. By the way, I will note that uh, the Little Mermaid looks absolutely terrible just on an aesthetic level. I've never been a fan of Disney remaking all of its animated films as live action films. In fact, the entire purpose of animation is to not be live action. But now they are remaking it and it looks hideous. And just, just on an aesthetic level, this movie looks terrible. It, it looks, for, for again, forget about all the wokeness for a second. Look how bad this looks. Like the, it looks as if, the, I don't know why they're going for some sort of realism as though you're actually at an aquarium. As opposed to, you know, it being colorful and bright. I don't know why they are going for, you know, 1940s film noir look in color live action The Little Mermaid but uh, here we go if you had just seen it up there the ship rode on the wind and they filled the sky with fire okay, yeah, this looks okay, so terrible to me. the human world is a mess life under the sea is better than anything they got going on okay so it's an empty sea and her floating around creepy uncanny valid territory Sebastian looks awful it's creepy and weird so instead of him being a, a cute and interesting crab, he now looks like an actual crab that's singing to you in extremely creepy fashion. Also, the ocean is completely empty. This looks terrible. My goodness. Finding Nemo looks way better. That's not even a question. Producer Zach says Finding Nemo. Yes, I mean, this is not even remotely the same. Finding Nemo looks like it would be fun to live under the sea. This looks like you're basically living in a mausoleum underwater. Look at, like, where is it? This is a fun song, by the way. Where is the fun? She's in an empty sea, and he's singing to no one. Like, that's, if you, I, honestly, I'd wish to go back and juxtapose that to the original Little Mermaid animated scene. Not even, not even remotely close. So, I don't know what Disney's doing, but uh, it is certainly stupid. Alrighty, folks, the rest of the show is continuing right now. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll be getting into Chris Pratt being ripped up and down for, you know, being a Christian. If you're not a member, become a member. Use code Shapiro at checkout for two months free on all annual plans. Click that link in the description and join us.